Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon. Raycon start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. Go to buyraycon.com slash gold and use code HOLIDAY TODAY to get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Feels. Shipped right to your doorstep in only a few days, Feels CBD is the natural, healthy, better way to feel better. Go to feels.com slash gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. The Dow Jones was up almost 500 points today. That's about 1.4%, bringing its two-day rally to about 1,140 points. That's almost 3.3% in just two days. In fact, the NASDAQ had an even bigger rally today alone, gaining three and a quarter percent. But it didn't do as well yesterday as the broader market. So its two-day gain is 3.8%, but still bigger than the gain of the Dow. Of course, the NASDAQ was beaten up more prior to this two-day rally. The catalyst that inspired the rally was comments from Fauci, I think early Monday morning, that the Omicron virus is not really as bad as we thought because the symptoms are relatively mild. So it's not as bad as Delta, for example. And in fact, it may even be a blessing if it becomes the more dominant strain of the virus, if it has more mild symptoms and fewer people are hospitalized and even fewer people die, then actually it may turn out to be a net positive. And so as a result of that, the market really began to recover what it lost based on that scare, which really started on Black Friday or the evening of Thanksgiving. But we got to experience it in the U.S. on that Friday. But I remember on the podcast that I recorded on Friday, my first thought was that it probably was an overreaction in the markets to the threat posed 
by this new strain of COVID because we really had no indication whether or not this strain was any worse than the strains that already existed. And it turns out that not only isn't it worse, it's actually more mild. And my thinking was then was that the market probably overreacted, especially since even if it turned out that it was an even bigger threat that was going to bring about a new round of lockdowns where people self-quarantined back in their homes, I said, if that happened, well, then the central banks around the world were going to reopen the monetary spigots, not like they've ever closed them, but just open them even wider. And as a result, that would actually be positive for the stock markets, because after all, the last round of COVID lockdowns were very positive for the stock market. So why wouldn't a second round be just as positive? So that was my thinking was that either way, the market was likely to recover from any of these COVID related losses. And that is exactly what happened. But you have to remember that the losses that have been experienced since that day, and it wasn't just Black Friday, we had more losses, which by the way, this two-day rally has almost fully recovered all the losses since Black Friday. Not quite, but it's pretty close. But there really was a one-two punch that hit the markets. It wasn't just fear over Omicron. It was the Federal Reserve supposedly tightening monetary policy. Now, how did the Fed do that? Well, Powell testified first before the U.S. Senate and then before the House. And he basically confessed that inflation was not transitory, that we needed to retire the word transitory, that inflation is a much bigger threat than the Fed first thought, and that it's not just contained to a small segment of the economy that's associated with the reopening. It is widespread and that the Fed needs to adjust policy in response to a larger than expected inflation threat. And how is the Fed adjusting its policy to respond to this non-transitory inflation? Well, it is deciding to increase the pace of the taper so that maybe the Federal Reserve will finish the tapering process a couple of months sooner than it originally expected and therefore lift off on interest rates where the Fed finally notches interest rates slightly above zero, that date has also been moved forward potentially a couple of months. So maybe we may raise interest rates in May or April of next year as opposed to June or July. Supposedly this tiny adjustment in policy is now going to vanquish this inflation threat that up until now the Fed completely dismissed, but now that it recognizes that it underestimated how big the inflation fire was going to be, well, it was going to put it out simply by accelerating the taper a bit and hitting inflation with a quarter point interest rate a couple of months sooner than it had initially planned. Now, number one, that does constitute tightening as far as the market is concerned, because anything the Fed does that accelerates the pace of the taper or advances the first rate hike closer is a tightening in a sense that the Fed's loose monetary policy is slightly less loose. And as far as the market is concerned, less loose means tighter. 
But I think the markets are also looking beyond the first rate hike to the rate hikes that follow and the fact that the Fed has now acknowledged that it has a bigger fight on its hands and it's that fight that is causing collateral damage in the market. And though we had this big rally based on the relief that the Omicron variant is not nearly as bad as people first thought, I think this exuberance won't last long because ultimately the markets are going to have to refocus their attention on the elephant in the room, which is inflation and the Fed's supposed commitment to fight it. Because so long as the Fed is committed to fighting inflation, it needs to tighten monetary policy, which means the stock market no longer has the wind at its back, but the wind in its face. And as a result of that headwind, the market needs to move lower and it likely will move lower, particularly the stocks in the NASDAQ, the very high multiple growth tech oriented stocks that benefited disproportionately from the artificially low interest rates. They will also suffer disproportionately as those artificially low interest rates are gradually increased. Of course, what the markets still don't understand is what the Fed is planning on doing, at least what it admits to planning on doing in response to this unexpected inflation threat amounts to nothing because there is no way that merely finishing the taper a couple of months early and raising interest rates slightly above zero, maybe 50 basis points. Hell, maybe they even go all the way up to 1%. That's nothing in the face of the type of inflation that we already have. So if the Fed is serious about fighting inflation, it's going to take a lot more than what it's indicated it's willing to do. And of course, if it actually does that, the markets would implode. I mean, I don't even think the markets have priced in the small amount of tightening that the Fed is claiming it's prepared to do, let alone the actual degree of tightening that the Fed would be required to do to actually fight inflation. But then, of course, if the Fed actually applied the type of monetary cure for this inflation problem, the whole economy would get a whole new disease because we'd have another financial crisis. You cannot fight off inflation by raising interest rates and tightening monetary policy without completely deflating the bubble, without stock prices crashing, real estate prices crashing, and a worse financial crisis than 2008. And of course, when that happens, the Fed will abandon its inflation fight and start setting more inflation fires. That's the only policy remedy the Fed has for a recession, for a bear market, is to create inflation. You can't fight inflation and create inflation at the same time. So the markets still haven't figured out the dilemma that the Fed is in and that ultimately, even if the Fed starts an inflation fight, it's not going to win it. It's going to have to surrender because the collateral damage to the economy are politically unacceptable. A perfect example of just how bad the inflation problem is and how much worse it's going to get lay in the productivity and cost numbers that were released this morning. This is the final estimate for Q3 productivity and costs. Non-farm productivity, which was originally reported as falling by 5%, they thought that the 
final revision would notch a tenth off of that, and so productivity would only fall by 4.9%. Instead, it fell by 5.2%. That is the biggest quarterly drop in productivity since 1960. That's 62 years ago. I wasn't even alive in 1960, and neither were the vast majority of people who are listening to this podcast. So this is the biggest drop in productivity in most of our lifetimes. This is a huge event. And driving this collapse in productivity are soaring unit labor costs, which were originally estimated to have risen by 8.3% on the quarter, but it turns out they actually increased by 9.6%. Now, these are year-over-year annualized rates, but 9.6% is a huge number, and it's well above the upper end of the estimates, which went from a low of 7.3 to a high of 8.7. Now, of course, a lot of people will automatically think, oh, well, this is good news, right? Unit labor costs, doesn't that mean that workers are getting paid more? And shouldn't we be happy about workers earning more money? Well, first of all, unit labor costs is more than just the wages and salaries that are paid to the workers. That's part of the labor cost. That's the part that the worker gets. But there are a lot of labor costs that the worker doesn't get. Employers incur those costs, but they don't necessarily pay the money to their workers. It's just added expenses associated with hiring people, whether they're regulatory expenses, taxes, or other benefits that are not necessarily paid to workers. Let's say health insurance. If health insurance becomes more expensive, that doesn't benefit the worker that his health insurance is more expensive, but the employer has to pay that higher health insurance cost on behalf of his worker. So the worker doesn't get more money. He just now has a more expensive insurance policy, but it's not more expensive because it has better coverage. In many cases, it has worse coverage. It's just more expensive because the cost went up. And so it doesn't benefit the worker. And neither do a lot of the other costs that employers have to pay in order to hire people. Now, if employers didn't have to pay those costs, then they would have extra money to pay higher wages, but they don't. And the Biden administration is threatening to dump a whole bunch of additional costs on employers to cover all sorts of new programs and benefits. But a lot of those expenses that employers are going to incur are not going to necessarily improve the real wages of the workers, but it is going to make it more expensive to hire people. And ultimately, fewer people will be hired. And those that are will have to receive lower wages in order to cover those costs. By now, you've probably seen about a thousand gift guides for the holiday season. Gifts for mom, gifts for guys, even gifts for your neighbor's cousin's dog. You can study all those gift guides and shop at 10 different places, or you can start your shopping at Raycon and get the gift everyone will use, Raycon wireless earbuds. I love my Raycons, and so does my son Preston. In fact, he liked them so much, we had to get him his own pair. Raycons are my go-to for audio on the go. Go to buyraycon.com gold and use code HOLIDAY today to get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Raycons give you amazing audio quality whenever you're on the go. 
whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work out, or work. They're great gifts for anyone on your list. Even better for you, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. The new Everyday Earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. You've got Pure Mode, my favorite, for listening to podcasts, blues and instrumental, Balance Mode, also for podcast listening, rock and heavy metal, and then Bass Mode for hip-hop, EDM, and reggae. Raycons are available in five stylus colors, so you can pick a perfect one for everyone on your list. And with free shipping and returns, gifting has never been easier. And while you're at it, pick up a pair for yourself. You're going to use them every day. Yep, the holidays are coming up faster than you think. Now is the time to knock out the gift list and avoid the last-minute shipping scramble, especially because right now my listeners will get 15% off site-wide with code HOLIDAY at buyraycon.com gold. That's buyraycon.com gold. But the point is, if productivity is collapsing, what does that mean about prices? Because one of the ways to offset the impact of inflation is through increased productivity, right? The government is creating more money, but if the free market creates more stuff to buy with that money, prices may not necessarily go up. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't inflation because the inflation is the expansion of the money supply, but an increase in productivity will make the impact of inflation on prices harder to notice. Now, of course, if we have a big increase in productivity and we don't get inflation, the government doesn't expand money supply, then prices would fall. Now, the government tells us, well, that's a terrible thing. We can't let that happen. But of course, falling prices are a great thing because the lower prices are, the more stuff we can afford to buy. You have a higher standard of living when your cost of living goes down. And so, Greater productivity reduces the cost of living. Now, the government robs us of those benefits by creating inflation, but at least increased productivity helps to hide the effect on inflation by muting the increase in consumer prices. But what happens when productivity is falling? Well, now it compounds the impact inflation has on consumer prices because the government is printing more money to buy stuff, but our productivity is falling. So we're producing less stuff to buy, even though we have more money to pay for it. And so prices really accelerate. Collapsing productivity is a very dangerous sign that consumer prices are headed much, much higher. And it also shows that real wages are headed much, much lower. Because the only way that real wages can rise is if productivity goes up. That is the secret to earning higher wages. Workers have to become more productive. And it's that higher productivity that allows their employers to pay them more. Because employers don't hire people unless they can make a profit on their labor. Meaning that you have to add more value to your employer than his cost of employing you. But the more productive you are, the more value you can add. And a lot of times that productivity is a function not of your own skills and your own work, but the capital that your employer is able to provide you with. Because when you combine your labor with his capital, your productivity increases. For example, think about somebody who's digging with a shovel. 
How much dirt can he move in a day just using a shovel? On the other hand, what if you give that individual a bulldozer and now he can move a lot more dirt with that machine, that piece of capital in a day than he could using a shovel? And because that piece of capital equipment has made that worker much more productive, the employer can pay that worker more money. But what's enabling the employer to pay him more money is the addition of capital. If he was still digging with just a shovel, he really couldn't pay him anymore unless that worker could just shovel faster and shovel harder and move a little bit more dirt. But there's probably some limits to just how much dirt you can move if all you got is a shovel. But the minute you give somebody a bulldozer and now they have the ability to dramatically increase their labor productivity and that's what enables them to earn more money. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But if productivity is falling, and as a result of that reduction in productivity, prices are rising, even though workers are going to get paid higher nominal wages and salaries, their wage increases will be smaller than the consumer price increases that they'll be dealing with when they go to buy stuff. So in other words, they're going to be paid more but they're gonna earn less in real terms. Now, the Biden administration may try to claim credit for wages going up, but they're not gonna acknowledge the fact that consumer prices are going up even faster. And again, productivity is the key. Whenever you see these politicians claiming that they're gonna raise wages by passing laws, such as the minimum wage, you can't increase wages by decree. Wages can only go up in real terms if productivity goes up. So the only thing the government can do with laws is increase nominal wages. But what counts isn't what you're paid, but what you can buy with what you earn. And even if you get paid more, but you end up buying less, you are worse off. And a lot of Americans are going to be worse off. And these productivity and cost numbers provide sharp evidence as to how much worse off they're going to be and that we are staring at the beginning of a massive inflation problem when we've got productivity numbers this week. Again, the weakest in 62 years. And there's no indication that this is going to turn around. And in fact, as soon as these numbers came out, the price of gold actually sold off again. It wasn't that big a sell-off. You know, maybe eight or nine bucks or so. I think it went from up three or four dollars to down five or six dollars, something like that. But it was instantaneous as soon as these numbers were released because these numbers were received by the market as evidence of inflation. And again, oh no, inflation, the Fed is going to have to get tough on inflation. It's going to have to be more aggressive in tightening rates and therefore gold's going to go down. Now, of course, gold didn't go down very much. And in fact, it didn't stay down and it closed higher. Gold ended up positive by about $6. You know, we're still below 1800 but not by much. 17 
85 is about where we settled. And I think these knee-jerk reactions that gold has to worse-than-expected inflation data are getting more mild. I mean, maybe markets are waking up to the idea that maybe high inflation is actually good for gold, especially when people figure out that the Fed can't do anything about the high inflation. And because it can't do anything about it, it's going to get much worse, which is even better for gold. Now, we got some other economic numbers that also came out today. One that I always talk about, the trade deficit in goods and services. So this is the unified deficit that includes the surplus that we have in services. Now, last month, the deficit, I think, was a record high. It was 80.9% billion dollars and well we revised that up and now that record is an even bigger number 81.4 billion is the number for September the October number was a big improvement not quite as big an improvement as was expected they were looking for a 66.8 billion dollar deficit instead it came out at 67.1 billion a little bit higher than expected but way below the deficit from the prior month. I'm not really sure what was behind uh, this decline and whether or not it's significant. I mean, it's still a huge number. It's only small in relation to the even larger number that we had the month before, but just taken on its own, 67.1 billion is a horrible number for a single month. But my guess is that's a correction I think we're going to see much worse trade deficits in the months ahead. I think we're going to head to new record high territory in trade. That also relates to the collapsing productivity because to the extent that American productivity is declining, we're going to be more reliant on global productivity. We're going to have to import more of the stuff that we're no longer making ourselves. All of these numbers are evidence of a very sick economy that's getting even sicker. Despite all of the proclamations from major economists and Wall Street and the Biden administration that the economy is in great shape, even Fed Chair Powell described the economy as being in great shape. But all the real statistics belie those rosy scenarios when you just look beneath this curtain and see what's actually there. We also got numbers for consumer credit. I mean, consumers are borrowing a lot of money. In September, they borrowed $27.8 billion, which was a big number, although it was slightly lower than the original report of $29.9 billion. And the consensus was for another $30 billion of debt in October. And in fact, we only borrowed $16.9 billion. That number was way below consensus forecast. The forecast actually ranged from an increase of $25 billion to an increase of $40 billion, so $16.9 billion, way below. Now, in my opinion, it's a good thing. Whenever consumers take on less debt, I think that's a positive thing. In fact, I don't even think consumers should borrow money to consume. It is a poor use of credit to 
make it available to finance consumption. You don't want credit to finance consumption. You want it to finance production. You want producers borrowing money for capital investment so that they can produce stuff and retire their loans from the profits of increased productivity. You don't want to burden consumers with debt where the only way they can repay the debt is through reduced future consumption because they're not borrowing to buy productive assets or income generating assets. They're just borrowing to spend. But in the month of October, they borrowed a lot less than people had expected. Now, while I think that's good news, the markets may not look at it that way because if you are hanging your hat on a consumer-led recovery, well, the only way American consumers can keep on spending is if they keep on borrowing because we know they don't have adequate incomes and they certainly don't have the savings. So the only way they can keep on spending is to keep on borrowing. Now, they shouldn't be doing that. When you're in a hole, you're supposed to stop digging. But of course, we never want to stop digging because that's the only way to keep this whole bubble going. So the extent that consumers are not taking on enough debt, that is problematic if you're counting on this bubble getting bigger. The two-day bounce in risk assets also included the riskiest assets of them all, cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, which did manage to rise back above 50,000. It never quite hit 52,000. I saw it get to 51,999 before selling came in. As I'm recording the podcast, though, we're back around 50,500-ish. But you know what I really want to point out in crypto world is take a look at what's going on with Ether and the relative valuation of Bitcoin to Ether. Because right now, Ether is at the highest it's been in years against Bitcoin. Bitcoin represents 40.6% of all of the crypto market cap. Ether now is 21.7%. The market cap of Bitcoin is about 950 billion. Ether is over 500 billion. For the first time in a while, Ether is more than half of Bitcoin. And if you look at a chart of Ether in Bitcoin, it is a breakout. I think Ether is going to move up substantially. And I said this a while ago on my podcast that I thought Ether would continue to gain against Bitcoin. And for all those people who say, oh, Bitcoin is a store of value, clearly, if you're trying to store your Ethereum, it's a lousy store of value because Bitcoin keeps going down in terms of Ethereum. And my guess is that's going to continue. I also think there's probably a lot more leverage in Bitcoin than there is in Ether. And so a much greater potential for margin call related selling. And I think the attitude of investors is far more cultish in Bitcoin than it is in Ether. Not that I'm a fan of Ether or that I would buy any Ether. I'm not. In fact, I think that Ether is going to gain on Bitcoin in a bear market not in a bull market, because the Ether chart in terms of Bitcoin looks great, but in terms of dollars, to me, it looks toppy. I think Ether's price is going to fall in terms of dollars, but I think its price is going to rise in terms of Bitcoin. And ultimately, Bitcoin's fall relative to Ether is going to be a problem for everybody who proclaims 
that Bitcoin is a store of value, Bitcoin is digital gold, because if Bitcoin is falling against Ether, then why not use Ether as your so-called store of value? What is the purpose of Bitcoin if you can do everything that you can with Bitcoin with Ether and Ether is holding up better than Bitcoin? If Bitcoin disrupted gold, maybe Ether has already disrupted Bitcoin. If Bitcoin is gold 2.0, then Ether could be Bitcoin 2.0. Now, again, I don't recommend any of these cryptocurrencies, but I'm just pointing out what's already happening because obviously Ether is used for a lot more stuff than Bitcoin. And Bitcoin's whole use case is that it stores value. Well, if Ether proves to be a better store of value, and again, how do these Bitcoin guys measure store of value? Price appreciation. Whenever I claim that Bitcoin isn't a store of value, somebody always points out how much the price has gone up over the last 10 years, as if an appreciating price has anything to do with store of value. Price and value are two very different things. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. That's what Warren Buffett taught us. Well, if you're basing your belief that price is a determinant of value and that a rising price equates to a store of value, well, if Ethereum's price is rising faster than Bitcoin's, therefore it's a better store of value. And so what's the point of owning Bitcoin? And so I think Bitcoin is gonna come under some big pressure as it continues to surrender market share to Ether. CBD isn't about what you feel, it's about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, pain. I use it to help me sleep through the night. Before I started using it, I would routinely wake up once or twice during the night, but when I take a little CBD before bedtime, I usually sleep right through the morning. And Feels is a better way to feel better, and we have a great offer. Go to feels.com gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. Feels is a premium CBD that will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free, delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There are no hangovers or addictions. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. That's feels.com, F-E-A-L-S.com slash gold to become a member and to get 40% automatically taken off your first three months with free shipping. But I want to spend the rest of today's podcast talking about what's happening to America over the last 80 years since the Imperial Japanese Navy bombed Pearl Harbor. Today is December 7th, 2021. It was December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and that marked America's entrance into the Second World War. And there has been a lot of comparisons in recent years to America today and America during and after the Second World War. Most recently, regarding COVID. 
you had President Trump and many other people in the early days of COVID compare the war on COVID to the war that Americans fought against the Nazis and the Japanese. And they were saying that we needed to come together as a nation the way we came together to fight the Second World War. We had to mobilize and we had to all sacrifice now in ways that were similar to the way we sacrificed then. And I pointed out at the time how ridiculous those comparisons were because we were not asking Americans to sacrifice at all to fight the war on COVID. In sharp contrast to the real sacrifices that Americans were asked to make to fight World War II. What sacrifices did we actually ask Americans to make to fight the war on COVID? We told them not to go to work and not to travel, but to stay at home and to keep spending money. And if you didn't have enough money to spend, well, we were going to send you checks. Oh, and by the way, while you're at home, no point in paying your rent. You could just live rent-free and use that money to buy stuff too. So Americans started to buy more stuff during the war on COVID than they were buying before the war began. What kind of sacrifice is that? Americans actually sacrificed to fight World War II. Consumption collapsed. People stopped spending money during World War II. In fact, there wasn't a lot of stuff to buy because we rationed goods to civilians so that those goods could be used for the war effort. In fact, our entire industrial base was converted over from peacetime to wartime production. And so a lot of the goods that were being produced were no longer being produced because those factories and the workers were producing stuff for the military. And in fact, a lot of the workers who used to work in those factories were out fighting the war. So their wives had to step up and go to work. So a lot of housewives who were staying at home, they actually made real sacrifices. They had to go into work. The whole country sacrificed to fight World War II. We didn't ask people to sacrifice to fight this war on COVID. In fact, remember the war on terror under Bush after the 9-11 terrorist attack and we had declared war on terror? What did George Bush say that he wanted Americans to do? Now that we had declared war on terror, what sacrifices did George Bush ask Americans to make? He told Americans not to stop spending, to keep on buying stuff, show these terrorists that they can't hurt our economy. So go out to the mall and buy more stuff. In fact, buy more stuff than you were planning on buying before. That was the sacrifice. Can you imagine if Roosevelt told Americans at the beginning of World War II, go out and shop, go to the store and buy some more stuff for yourself? We would have lost the war if we tried to fight it with that mentality. In fact, the average American, and I went over this on a podcast I did back then, But we had massive tax increases on middle-class Americans to pay for the war. Roosevelt was honest with the American public. He said, we've got this war that we've got to fight, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and so you've got to pay for it. That's the opposite of what we said with the war on COVID. The government said, hey, we have to fight this war on COVID, but don't worry, it's not going to cost you anything. Nobody has to pay for it. I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course, somebody has to pay for it. At least back then, the government was honest with the public about the cost of programs. So taxes were raised. But the amazing thing was, 
Americans could afford to pay the higher taxes. We had the money. We were a rich nation. Not only did we have the money, we had the factories. We had the factories that were producing goods that we could retool to produce weapons. I mean, we don't even have that anymore. It would be impossible to mobilize the country today to fight a war like that the way we did in 1941. We don't have the industrial infrastructure. We don't have the supply chains. We don't have the manpower. We can't do it. We got a bunch of service sector workers. How are we going to arm and supply the troops the way we did in the Second World War? I mean, we are a shadow of what we used to be as a nation. But, you know, not only did we raise taxes on the middle class to fight the Second World War, but we also borrowed money from the middle class because after the government raised taxes on the middle class, the government asked the middle class to buy war bonds. Hey, we need more money. Loan us money. And so lots of people bought war bonds. Where'd they get the money? Well, they had it. They had something that Americans don't have today, and that's savings. The reason that we could afford to finance the cost of World War II was because we had the money. We don't have the money now. We can't afford to finance anything. The Fed has to print the money. Now, the Fed printed some money to finance the Second World War. It's not like they didn't print any, but the vast majority of the costs of that war were paid for by tax increases, Yes, the rich paid more taxes too, but so did the middle class and by borrowing from Americans. We didn't borrow from the Japanese. Well, obviously we couldn't borrow from them. We were fighting them, but that shows you how ironic it is because our main supposed enemy right now is China, right? China is one of our biggest bankers. We're borrowing tons of money from China. How are we going to fight a war with China and expect the Chinese to pay for it? Hey, by the way, I know we're at war, but can you buy some more of our bonds? Because otherwise we're going to run out of money. We don't have the ability to finance a war ourselves, and we certainly can't borrow the money from our enemies. But that's another comparison that is being bandied about today when you talk about World War II. Because we did run up a lot of debt during the war. And by 1946, America's debt to GDP was 119%. And we survived that as a nation. We were able to come back from 119% debt to GDP. And so people are saying that, well, we were able to survive and rebound from 119% debt to GDP in 1946 So we should be able to do it again today. Oh, really? First of all, today, the debt to GDP is actually higher than that. We're at about 126%. But the reason that the country survived the 119% debt to GDP in 1946 was because we did something about it. As soon as the war ended, we started paying down the debt. And in fact, in the first two years, the national debt went from $269 billion in 1946 to $252 billion in 1948. So we actually paid down 6.3% of the debt in two years by running surpluses in the government. And in fact, if you look forward to 1953, which was seven years later, the national debt was $256 billion, which was $13 billion lower than it was seven years earlier. 
Can you imagine the U.S. running budget surpluses for seven years in a row to pay down 5% of the national debt? It's true the debt increased a little bit between 1948 and 1953, but the economy grew quite a bit during those years. And in fact, even 11 years later, in 1957, the national debt was only $271 billion. So in other words, only $2 billion was added to the national debt in 11 years. And because the government was fiscally responsible in general following World War II, the debt to GDP continued to come down. In fact, in 1957, debt to GDP was at 57%. So it took 11 years to basically cut the debt to GDP level in half. And in fact, debt to GDP continued to fall until it hit a low point of 31% in 1974. And then, of course, it just was uphill from there as we went through the 1970s. The Great Society programs really kicked in, the Vietnam War, and then you know the history and you know where we are right now. But the bottom line is the reason that the debt following World War II didn't become a crisis was because we paid it down and we had massive economic growth on top of fiscal responsibility. Neither of that is going to happen now. Do we have any plans whatsoever of paying down any of this debt? No. Our plans right now are to make the debt much bigger. We already have a higher debt to GDP than we had at the end of the Second World War, yet instead of paying the debt down, we are dramatically expanding the size of the debt. We are adding new entitlement programs to the ones that already exist. And nobody is talking about raising anybody's taxes. I mean, one of the reasons that we were able to pay down a lot of this debt following the Second World War is because the payroll tax that was imposed in 1942 as a victory tax was never repealed once we achieved victory. So in other words, the secret to paying down the national debt was taxing the middle class because the middle class wasn't paying taxes before the Second World War, but the government used the Second World War to get the middle class to agree to pay income taxes because before 1942, there was no wage withholding. If you earned money, nothing came out of your check. I mean, other than Social Security. And if you were self-employed, you didn't pay that. But when the war started, the government needed money. And so for the first time, the government started taking money out of people's paychecks. But of course, they also increased taxes so that a lot of people who were exempt from the income tax before the Second World War started were not exempt during the war. But when the war ended, they never repealed that victory tax. It stayed there. And of course, there was inflation that was created to help pay for the war. There was money printed during the war. And so inflation pushed people into even higher tax brackets, which provided an even bigger windfall to the government. So the reason that the debt came down was because we were willing to tax average Americans at much higher rates 
in order to do that. Well, is anybody talking about major tax increases for middle-class Americans? No, they still want to talk about cutting taxes for middle-class Americans and increasing benefits provided to middle-class Americans. How are you going to do that and reduce the debt to GDP? You can't. So we are going to make this problem much, much worse. And therefore, these comparisons to the Second World War are ridiculous because we are not doing anything that we did following that war to bring that debt to GDP back down to a manageable level. And in fact, the only reason that debt to GDP got so high in the first place was because we fought World War II. What's the excuse now? I mean, we're not involved in anything nearly as bad as the Second World War. I mean, that was also part of the reason I hated those comparisons between the war on COVID and the Second World War. I mean, you didn't have a bunch of young men dying in the war on COVID. I mean, there were some people that died and I feel very badly for those that did, but the vast majority of people who died from COVID were in their 80s. It's a lot worse when young men in their 20s are dying and they're dying in war than when you have people in their 80s. Yes, it's bad when your parent dies or your grandparent, but it's worse when your child dies. That's a big problem. That's a huge tragedy. And that's what was going on in the Second World War. Plus, you had all sorts of destruction that was going on. People were getting sick from COVID, but we weren't blowing up buildings. It wasn't an actual war. So to say that it was just as bad as the Second World War really dishonors the memory of all the people who fought in that war and died in that war and all the family members who lost loved ones during that war. And another point that I made, and I'm going to make it again, is that nobody got a bailout. When COVID started, the government says, don't worry, if you've got a small business, we're gonna give you money. We're gonna help you out because we know that you're losing sales, you're losing business during COVID. And so don't worry, we got a bailout program for you. We got a payroll protection plan. There was all this money that was made available to businesses. None of this happened during World War II. And it's not like businesses didn't suffer during World War II. It's not like bars and restaurants didn't have a hard time during World War II. First of all, a lot of the people that would normally go to bars and eat in restaurants went off to fight a war. Those are young men that were taking their girlfriends out on dates. Well, they're not taking it out on dates when they're out fighting a war. And of course, a lot of the women who were housewives were now going out and working, but they still had kids to take care of. So a lot of people weren't going out to bars and restaurants during the war. And of course, a lot of people didn't feel like celebrating when people were off fighting in the war. So business went down. What about tourism? How many people you think were traveling around during the Second World War, right? I mean, certainly people weren't going over to Europe on vacation, but there was probably a lot less travel, but there were no bailouts for the hotels or travel agencies. I mean, all of these businesses had to tough it out. Nobody got anything from the government, yet everybody survived. And of course, when World War II started in 1941, we had just gotten out of the Great Depression. I mean, the Great Depression went through the entire decade of the 1930s. How is it that Americans went through the Great Depression, yet we were still able to pay for the Second World War? Average Americans, having just endured the worst 
economic environment in U.S. history, had money for higher taxes, had money to buy war bonds, and were able to get by without any government money. No bailout money, no stimulus checks. How is that? Because we had a rich nation, a powerful nation, a nation that had a huge industrial base and lots of domestic savings. We were able to ramp up, tool up, fight that war, and pay for it ourselves. Something that America is completely incapable of doing today. This is what's happened with 80 years of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I know we had a Federal Reserve in 1941, but it hadn't been around that long, and so it hadn't been able to do nearly as much damage. Yeah, it did some damage. In fact, it inflated a bubble in the latter part of the 1920s that crashed in 1929. Oh, and by the way, the debt to GDP in 1929 was just 16%. Roosevelt ran it up. It was about 44% in 1941 when we started the Second World War. So debt to GDP went from 41% up to 119% during that war. And then it gradually came down, as I said, down to 31% in 1974. But it never got anywhere near the 16% that it was at in 1929. But the reason that we were able to rack up that much debt, I think, was because of the Federal Reserve. And now we've got almost $30 trillion of debt. And all of that is because of the Federal Reserve. Because without the Federal Reserve monetizing all this debt, without the Federal Reserve artificially suppressing interest rates, there is no way we could have ever accumulated this much debt. There's no way the U.S. government could have ever grown to the size that it is without the help of the Federal Reserve. So 80 years of central government planning through the equivalent of a Politburo fixing interest rates, and look what's happened to our country. I mean, a lot of people will be talking about the 80-year anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And while we certainly want to look back on that date and remember the sacrifices that were made to win that war, We also need to mourn the loss of freedom, the loss of economic power, the destruction of our country. Thinking about how great America once was, that we were able to respond to that unprovoked attack in Hawaii the way we did, and that we were able to win that war, and not only win the war, but help rebuild the economies of the countries we defeated. Look at the amount of money that America spent on the Marshall Plan. Look at what we did in Germany and Japan. Look at those countries. Ultimately, West Germany and Japan ended up producing economies that were stronger than ours because they largely followed the capitalist blueprints that we gave them. Meanwhile, we stopped following them ourselves as they were enjoying lower taxes and fewer regulations We were raising taxes and increasing regulations, and eventually we were running massive trade deficits with both Japan and Germany, countries with which we used to enjoy large trade surpluses, and those trade deficits continue today. But think about the type of nation that could have afforded to do all that. And why was America so rich and so powerful? It was because we were so free. The power that we had and the wealth that we had in the 1940s was largely a function 
of the massive economic growth of the 19th century, the economic growth that followed the end of the Civil War and went through the beginning of the Second World War, the Industrial Revolution, all of that made possible by limited government and sound money. We didn't have all these government agencies and departments. We didn't have all these taxes. What we had was freedom. And free people produced an unprecedented amount of wealth, which enabled us to fight and win the Second World War. But 80 years later, we are but a shadow of our former selves. And we're about to go through a major crisis. I talked about the Great Depression that preceded the Second World War. What we're about to experience as a nation economically is gonna be far worse. I mean, hopefully we don't have to go through something which would be the equivalent of a world war. That would just make the situation much worse than it's already gonna be. But just from a purely economic perspective, we are gonna pay the price for decades of profligacy, for running these trade deficits and these budget deficits and printing all this money and allowing our industrial base to disintegrate as we've morphed into this service sector economy propped up by cheap money and credit and consumption. All of this is about to come collapsing down. And all the evidence is there to see. The productivity numbers that I talked about earlier in the podcast, the worst in 62 years, that is not an accident that that is happening. The worst inflation in more than 30 years, and of course, if it was honestly measured, it's probably the worst inflation ever. This is not an accident. These chickens are finally coming home to roost, and the mainstream is completely oblivious to what's about to happen because they've never understood the problems. When people like me have been warning about the problems, our warnings have have been routinely dismissed and because the dire consequences have been postponed everybody assumes that we're going to get away with this forever well now it's happening this is the beginning and nobody understands it because again when you don't know you're in a bubble you don't see the pin 